0: This is the conclusion of a novel, in which the narrator is um, unreliable. It at the face. Characters at the edges and on the edge, remaining a perpetual possibility. Lonely, violent, deeply American life. only in a world of speculation.
1: True ease in writing comes from art, not chance. Fine is my valentine, very fine and very mine. You're listening
0: to the Grand Podcast Abyss with John Pistelli. Great and up with his retinue.
1: All right, everybody, you're listening to the Grand Podcast Abyss. I'm your co-host, John Pistelli, and I'm here with this thing of darkness, Sam Worthington.
0: Hey, don't call me a Joseph Conrad novel, John.
1: <laughs> Actually, Sam... We're recording on April 23rd, uh, which is—do you know the significance of that date, Sam? No. It's the birthday of William Shakespeare.
0: Oh, Bill Shakespeare. <laughs>
1: Wild Bill.
0: Um, and the, b- the bard himself. The
1: bard. <laughs> and I was quoting from The Tempest, where Prospero says at the end of his monstrous servant—no offense, Sam—this mm-hmm. thing of darkness I acknowledge mine.
0: Well— if there's one crew in the Tempest that I wouldn't mind hanging out with, it's my boy Caliban, Draculo, and Stefano. Yeah. That's my crew. Who would you want to spend your time with? Um sucking up to Prospero? <laughs> <laughs> trying to trying to court Ariel away from from Ferdinand.
1: Yeah, I mean I'd probably want to hang out with Ariel and Miranda. Yeah. It seems more like my crew. Yeah. This might speak to our differing high school experiences.
0: Yeah. What do you think about this
1: play? It's interesting, Sam, because there's a couple distinguishing things about it. It's one of Shakespeare's latest plays. It's generally said to be the last play he wrote without collaboration. Apparently he wrote... A couple other plays with, you know, with a writing partner, but this is the last thing he wrote alone.
0: This is, yeah, this is a sublime fact about it. Yeah, um, and
1: it feels valedictory. Mm-hmm. It feels like an artist's farewell to his art. Um, another thing about it is that it's shorter than most Shakespeare plays. It's quite brief. Um, it doesn't have a single source. Shakespeare often was almost in the role. Um, when I used to teach my students, which when I would teach Shakespeare, they would say, Well, he was just a plagiarist. And I was like, No, no, no. Um, that's a little too simple. But I, I said, The way to think about it is he was, uh, it's like at the Oscars when they give best adapted screenplay, mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. he was in the role of an adapter. Uh, so he was often adapting other plays or various kinds of mm-hmm. nonfiction works. And most of his plays have some kind of identifiable source. This one doesn't. There's some lines from Ovid, there's some lines from Montaigne. But mm-hmm. the actual story, and the story appears to have been inspired by a lot of the proto-colonial travel mm-hmm. literature of the Elizabethan era. But the plot itself seems to be original.
0: Well, I expect a, a quota of, of stolen uh, source material in my in my favorite artworks. So yes, that's an <laughs> expectation. Right. It's not an obstacle.
1: <laughs> right. No, oh, clearly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Plagiarism is not. Uh, yeah. Plagiarism is only a crime in school. Yeah.
0: Uh, <laughs> um. But that's interesting, just getting back to this being his final play, because if there is immortality granted in English literature, who possesses a greater quantity than William Shakespeare? Anybody? mm -hmm. No. No. Nobody. No. Um, He will be within us as long as we occupy this earth and speak this tongue.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Whichever comes first, the end of the earth or the end of the tongue. Well, there's
0: one <laughs> tongue that's going to be there at the end. <laughs> it might be this one. It's going to be this one. Or, or the
1: speakers of this tongue might be the ones to end the earth. Well,
0: you know, it w- if, if it happened, it would, be for, it, would, it would not be without provocation. Anyway. <laughs> Oh. We'll go back to Ukraine and Russia
1: later. Sam, so. um, um, go on.
0: Yeah, provocation, provocation, <laughs> belligerence, belligerence. Uh, but it's so fascinating to think about this immortal literary—I um, don't know what the right word is. What is superlatives? What what noun of renown can we apply to this man? I mean, the Bard is yeah, pretty, the, uh, the Bard, the Bard, he's okay. the Bard.
1: But Prosper,
0: it seems like as he, and Prospero has this line. Oh, if we go back, and we're going to explain the plot, so just relax, everybody. If <laughs> if, 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 Pros, if Prospero goes back, so at the end, man, he fixes, he omnipotently fixes everything. Wonderful comedy, wonderful wedding. He says, if I do go back to Milan, I'll chill. I'll chill right out, and I'll think about death three times a day, or yeah, like every third. Every thought third shall thought be my grave. Every third, so obviously that's that's autobiographical, mm-hmm. uh, as Shakespeare is moving towards death.
1: And he does uh, Shakespeare does leave London and goes back to to Stratford. It's
0: beautiful, but it, it, isn't it so nice to think about the way that Prospero um, edifies, nurtures, disciplines, controls, um, revels in. Um, expresses within, and ultimately is the dominant influence on this island mm-hmm. in The Tempest, that is exactly the afterlife and the exact effects that Shakespeare has on our island of yeah. English literature. Right. Happy birthday, William Shakespeare. Happy, happy birthday to you. Happy, 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 happy birthday to the bar. Happy, happy birthday to you. Your plays are so cool. Your sound are so
1: Problems some critics and subsequent writers, especially in the last hundred years, have had with that. Tell me that Prospero is a colonizer,
0: oh master
1: yeah, that he's the master that he's um that his his omnipotent conditioning of all of his subordinates um, analogizes what was shortly to become the british Empire well, Listen
0: man i'm not I'm not Heinrich fucking himmler. But
1: that's a relief.
0: Yeah. I mean I'm not I'm not fucking I'm not a you know, this American made motherfucking CEO, curb stomping, you know, Mercedes driving fucking rich man. I'm the I told you at the top of the hour if there's one crew that I'm rolling with, it's it's Caliban, Stefano and Triculo. Right fucking off in mayhem. Yeah. Drunk of revelry. Yes. Insanity, delusions, uh, uh pain and torture and and enjoyment of it all. Um so that's where I and people who know me know that's where I come from and they know my history and they know uh, my my crew and my and my clan and my people and what's on my resume. So I'm there looking up mm-hmm. at Shakespeare. Yeah. And maybe you could say, oh, you're just a white man, and that's why it's so easy for you to say that. But no, I'm with that crew, and I'm looking up, and I'm giving them the same respect that I'm giving them. hmm So they just get off on their complaints.
1: Okay. Fair enough. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna make their case more elaborately shortly through sure. through Aimee Césaire. Yeah. Um Césaire. It, it's funny, Sam. You, you said off mic, I think, last week when we were recording, you were... Uh, And I I regretted that you didn't say it. I'm becoming the person that doesn't ever want to have a conversation without a a microphone in front of me. Uh, This is a thing that happens when people have a podcast. Um, But you had said Mm. off the mic, if you don't mind if I reveal this, that you often defend cultural populism and political elitism. And I often defend... Cultural elitism and political populism. And I think that's clear in the well, way Well, that's a big that... X. Did you see how that- That's the X, yeah. Yeah, yeah That's Confederate. Oh, God, <laughs> our apologies. Um, Just but... <laughs> but that's exactly right. You want to hang out with Caliban, Trinculo, and Sebastian, yeah. and Revere, Prospero I want to steal his clothes. Yeah, yeah. And I want to hang out with Ariel and Miranda- and formulate a purely mental left-wing critique. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, tell me more about why you want to hang out with Ariel and Miranda.
1: Well, because when I was in high school, I, all my friends were girls. I, I, Ariel is a man, by the way, but he's often cast as a woman. In uh, I read this on Wikipedia that he's often cast That's as a woman. It's because he
0: gets things done, and women get things done. Right.
1: <laughs> and I think of Ariel as a, as a woman when I read the play. Um, so... And I read on Wikipedia that some uh, productions there's a, now a trend of uh having uh sexual tension between Ariel and Prospera, which is interesting. Um well, you could do that if he was a man too, by the way. Um but there's something do we, do we have to go back to Death in Venice? Do we have to? Yeah. <laughs> do, we, do we have to relitigate? <laughs> right. Um but yeah, I I like I like Miranda's I like Miranda's uh, lyrical poetry, her gentleness, her compassion. I think she's one of Shakespeare's finest, kind of. He has this incredible gift for these female characters. He can do a quite cutting female character, like a kind of like like an arch bitch. And I mean, this is a compliment, whether in a comic or a tragic register, like a Lady Macbeth or a Beatrice from Much Ado About Nothing. But he also has this ability to do a, an Ophelia, a Miranda, a Juliet. Um, he really captures a kind of um, it's a touch it's a touch touch. Yeah, it really is Uh, it's hard it's a je ne sais quoi but who
0: else? you know who else can write female characters well who's that John Fastelli oh
1: thank you (laughs) (laughs) I'm flattered Um, I think
0: that's the most flattered you've ever been by something I've said it is I swear to god
1: (laughs) the first time you ever said that to me you look like a
0: fucking cherub right now (laughs)
1: The first time we you get ever... you some
0: wings and, and, and uh, write "Ariel" with Sharpie on your forehead and throw glitter at you. <laughs>
1: now, when, when you, when I asked you to edit my novel, "The Class of 2000," and then we met up to discuss your your proposed changes, um, I and you had said to me then that you liked the way I wrote female characters, um, and I told my wife that later. <laughs> And she laughed in my face and she said, you don't understand anything about women. Um, so it just proves you never There's know. There's some
0: sort of inverted dialectic in that. Yes. That I'm not prepared to unpack, but I think if I were prepared to unpack it, you would come out on the right side. OK.
1: Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Um but yeah, so that that uh, I think that our, our divided loyalties, our divided tempest loyalties here, speak to that interesting political X that uh, our sensibilities form.
0: Stars and bars.
1: <laughs> our apologies.
0: Stars for your for your <laughs> cheeks, and candy bars for my belly.
1: Our apologies. Um, perhaps we could do the plot of the Tempest real quick, Sam, and then get into some more specifics.
0: Yeah, leave not a rack behind. So what's <laughs> what, what <laughs> Let's let's go over this plot.
1: Okay, it's actually fairly simple. So we begin, oh that's another let me let me back up. That's another distinguishing mark of the Tempest, which is that Shakespeare, you know how Aristotle in the poetics, which is the foundational, text of European literary aesthetics, Um, (laughs) Aristotle in that text says that a play should obey what he called the unities of time and space. He said it should be set. um, he, He essentially thought a play should be set in one place and take place basically in real time. And that if you didn't do that, it would sort of break the theatrical illusion. Unity of action. Unity of action, unity of time, unity of space. And in Shakespeare's time, there were people who who clung to this or who thought it was reasonable. Shakespeare violently disrupts this in many of his plays. Um, He will set the, you know, between scenes, you'll move to different countries. Um, In the play Shakespeare wrote before this, the Winter's Tale, 16 years, passes between Acts 3 and Act 4. But this is a play where Shakespeare for once—I oh, don't know if he never does it, but it's in most of his famous plays, he does not obey these unities. and this one, he does. It takes place—Prospero says at one point—I I can't quote the line, but he says something like, um, It's one o'clock now. You know, we'll, we'll be done by about five. Which you, you can almost—Prospero often sounds like the, the writer or the director of the play. There you go. So it's almost as if he's talking to the audience. It's one now, but, you know, you'll be home by dinner, don't worry. Um, so it takes place in, in sort of real time, though there is a backstory. So it's set on this island. We don't really know where. It's kind of a magical island. It's often thought to be—it's clearly in the Mediterranean in the text because— um, the characters who get shipwrecked on it are sailing back to Italy from Tunisia. Mm-hmm. So it would have to be in the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. But it also metaphorically appears to be in the Caribbean and have some. How to many
0: t- Elizabethan um, fucking nonces got a kick out of the shipwreck from Africa to Italy? Yeah. That's like, <laughs> it's yeah. That sort of pure racial enjoyment, like, oh, you fucking, yeah. you fucking can't, even, <laughs> can't even steer the ship.
1: Right. Well, there is a, a line, too, where I think Sebastian says to Alonzo something about, how could you marry your daughter to an African? So Is this part
0: of the racial uh, aspect of this comedy? Yeah, so this is said is, to be one of what is What is exactly the object of derision here? Okay.
1: It can't be pinned down exactly because it's a fantasy.
0: But maybe the critics you were mentioning would say— It's a racial supremacist derisive um, comedy that's at the expense of the East and people of color.
1: Yeah, and I I think it is to a point, but I also think there are ironies in it that make it – as in all of Shakespeare's quote-unquote racial plays, whether it's The Merchant of Venice or Othello or this um, or Antony and Cleopatra, there are ironic – features that kind of undermine that authority.
0: Plus, he gives voice to freedom and dignity and individuality uh, through Caliban.
1: Yes, exactly. Similar to Shylock. Yeah. yeah.
0: So things are never so
1: simple. Right. Um, but the plot. Right, the plot. Um, so here's the plot. So we're on an island. Prospero lives there with his daughter, Miranda, who's just coming of age now. She's just becoming a an adult. They've lived there for 12 years. They left when she was a little kid. And he explains to her at the beginning, here's the situation. I was the Duke of Milan, but I was and am. I'm a magician. I'm an occultist. I'm a scholar. I was the greatest expert on what he calls the liberal arts in the, in the kingdom. And I got very absorbed in my studies. And my brother, I trusted—I delegated a lot to my brother— uh, Antonio, because he was, you know, I trusted him implicitly and he was very good at this politics stuff. He was like Iago. He was like Iago. Well, that's, can I say one more thing that, sure, yeah. <laughs> that's not about the plot? This play echoes every major Shakespeare play. There's some echo of a previous Shakespeare let's just put play. It,
0: let's just put it out there. All great, massive literary artists create their own intertextual, self referential. Worlds. Exactly. And, you know, there's not a lot of them. There's not a lot of them. I would say that the one that comes to mind for me that reaches this height, you're, you may not agree with this, is Thomas Pynchon.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I have no problem with that. Can't think of too many others. Maybe yeah. Morrison. Yeah, Morrison. Um, it, it's almost more common among poets. I feel like it's a very poet Thing where the whole body of work echoes with these recurring images, but that's a different thing,
0: though. Yeah, Yeah, it's a different thing. Yeah, we're talking about narrative art here. Narrative worlds and worlds,
1: right? Yeah, no. A lot of narrative artists sort of hop from thing to thing, or don't. You know, maybe Faulkner does it. um, Faulkner does it. Dickens, I think. Dostoevsky. You know,
0: who comes to mind is David
1: Lynch. Quite honestly, yeah, yeah, I would agree. Yeah, yeah. So the plot. So the plot. Um, so so. Prospero says, I was taken up with these magical studies and I wasn't, I was delegating a lot to my brother and I trusted him. But my, he says it very compactly. Uh, he says something like, he betrayed me to the inverse to which I trusted him, That that I trusted him so much that his treachery grew proportionately and he conspired with the King of Naples, Alonzo, to overthrow me, and so I had to flee in the night. I just had you, Miranda, and um, and Miranda doesn't remember anything. She says all I remember is maybe five women looking over my crib, which is interesting, psychoanalytically. Um, but I, she doesn't remember her mother. She doesn't remember anything. She's lived on the island with Prospero for twelve years. Now, what's happening now? That's the backstory. And Prospero well let's continue with the backstory. Prospero arrived on the island. He found it unpopulated except for it had been ruled by this witch named Sycorax. And Sycorax had a son who was this like monstrous half human, half they call him half fish, or like he looks like he's half marine.
0: Well, before we get to Caliban. Yeah. Prospero set in motion through
1: Ariel, the shipwreck. Did you mention that? Well, I was doing the whole backstory, and then I was gonna come into the present. <laughs>
0: okay, man. This is John. John is a master, a master of plot. And the ins and outs, the secret entranceways, and exit ways.
1: I, I'm not, but thank you. Um so he arrives there, Sycorax, the witch. Sycorax has a son, Caliban, who's this monstrous creature. And Sycorax, there's also this sort of Ariel spirit, named Ariel, A-R-I-E-L, that Sycorax resented and imprisoned in a tree. Now, Sycorax doesn't appear in the play. Does, are we told what happened? Did she die? Did she leave? Do we know what happened to Sycorax? I don't know. Okay. And so Prospero gets there. He says, okay, I'm going to free Ariel from the tree, and Ariel becomes his servant. And Ariel becomes the agent through which he... Does his magical thing She says He Ariel I always say she uh, mm-hmm. He says That you know Oh you send me to get uh, You send me to get uh, You know Ambrosia from Bermuda And you yeah. send me to To do things in yeah. the air and
0: You ready You ready for this table turn? With that In our pot Working Relationship on GPA here You're Prospero Uh huh I'm Ariel
1: You're Ariel That is true i mean listeners
0: John's got the designs John's got the context john's John's in the lineages john's got the john's got the status but he, <laughs>
1: He has wing, getting, John has this little winged
0: creature. He says, little winged creatures. <laughs> Just go fetch me some ethereal tones and go put go blend time, space, and light into.
1: But I would say that your your compositions are wholly original, and I have nothing to do with them. So well, you have a little Prospero. Nothing action will come your with own.
0: nothing. Speak again. You have something. <laughs> you have something.
1: You're the Prospero of sound.
0: Ooh. Fuck this shit. I'm just rocking with Caliban. All right, keep
1: going. (laughs) Okay. So Caliban is a little, just a little creature when he gets there. So he raises Caliban as he's raising Miranda. But by the time the play starts, his relationship with Caliban and his relationship with Ariel are very different. Ariel, he basically tells Ariel, I'm going to free you once I don't need you anymore Caliban, but Ariel gets to do the fun stuff. Ariel gets to fly to Bermuda. Caliban is almost his slave. It's like the difference between indentured and enslaved. Caliban does the dirty work. He says to Miranda. Miranda says, "Can't we just like get rid of this thing?" And he's like, "No," because he cuts the wood and draws the water. You know, so we we need him for the labor.
0: Master slave dialect. Master slave dialect. One of my favorite parts, and I'm sure the. Uh We could even go into Amé César here. When Caliban, if you want, when Caliban says to uh, Prospero about his servitude, you taught me language, and my prophet is, I know how to curse. Yeah. The red plague rid you for learning me your language. Mm -hmm. So the idea of the master teaching the tongue to the slave and the slave being able to express in sort of the linguistic bondage and perhaps rebel.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There and it's all I mean, it's 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 an amazing it's an amazingly prescient play because all of these colonial tropes are sort of in it before England had the full empire that it would have. Mm-hmm. That inspired the full <laughs> resistance it was going to inspire. Yeah. You just um, see Fanon in these lines. Exactly, yeah. That whole dilemma of, you know, the master's tools in the master's house, you know, can I can I resist in the language you taught me?
0: Caliban X.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That would be a good title for a text. Um, but, right, so now the pretext under which he oppresses Caliban, and this too is prescient of racial ideology, is he says, well, you you tried to rape Miranda. And Caliban actually says, well, yeah, I did, because I wanted to propagate more Calibans to overthrow you. But this idea of justifying some regime of oppression based on a sexual threat from the the males of the oppressed class is, is in those those lines.
0: As American as apple pie.
1: Yeah, it's very American. Um, yeah, Shakespeare is really the foundation of American literature as much as... Maybe more so than English literature. Pynchon, pinchin, Pynchon. Pinchin. <laughs> Melville, Hawthorne. Uh, Melville didn't write enough. No, he didn't. Um, well, he wrote a lot. We just don't read a lot of it. Those skinny itty bitties. Did you read Umu? I never read Umu. Uh, no. Um, <laughs> he didn't. He didn't
0: pound out, you know, thick Nancys every seven years. Not all the time now.
1: Um, <laughs> so uh, back to the plot. Um, So, But now, as the play opens, uh, Prospero is going to have his revenge on his usurpers and have himself restored because King Alonso of Naples, who helped Prospero's brother Antonio usurp him, has sailed with his whole retinue—great and puffed up with his Mm retinue—has sailed to Tunisia for the wedding of his daughter, Clarabel, who never appears in the play— And now he's sailing back and Prospero says – because Prospero is omnipotent. Prospero is – He's got the, the five eyes or whatever massive surveillance system going. Uh, Caliban complains about this. Caliban says, Prospero, I could be on the other side of the island, and if I'm not working hard, Prospero knows, and he gets the flies to sting me, and he gets the spirits to pinch me. So Prospero is the master of surveillance. So he knows that Alonso and his brother Antonio and their retinue are sailing back from Tunisia to Italy, and he says, Ariel, uh, broil up a tempest and shipwreck these fuckers here on this island. <laughs> um, <laughs> this reminds me of when I was in but, high school. But do it gently. <laughs> do it gently. He's right. like Batman. Don't hurt anybody. Yeah, don't hurt it. He says, don't hurt anybody. Because uh, Miranda's like, oh, my God, there was a shipwreck. I'm so uh, you know, compassionate and sad. And he's like, don't worry. They haven't been hurt. Um, so he says, you know, Ariel, send the Tempest. The, the shipwrecks, the play opens very brilliantly in Medius Race with the shipwreck. And the, there's, a, there's a, uh, a boat swain because there's a lot of unruly, demotic characters in this play that sort of interfere with its otherwise easy hierarchy mm-hmm. in politics and metaphysics. And We, one we the,
0: would call those agents.
1: Agents, yeah.
0: Agents from beyond. Yes. Welcome to the school of Lynchian. <laughs> Welcome to the Lynchian school. Agents from somewhere else appear with messages and purposes.
1: And one of the great messages early on is the boatswain, the rude boatswain, the tempest is roaring, and the uh, some of the members of the king's retinue comes out, and the boatswain says, "What care these roarers for the name of king? You know, what does nature care?" for this this poli- merely political mundane authority not knowing that prospero has actually brewed the storm through ariel so that's a thing about you know art and nature can we separate them that's a preoccupation shakespeare has in his later plays so
0: the old cock the old cock the cockerel <laughs> done the wager
1: the laughter a match the crew is shipwrecked the the, the ship is shipwrecked and three distinct groups of people um, wash up on the island separately and spend the play kind of wandering the island on their own, having their own scrapes and misadventures um, until Prospero brings them all together. So the first group is King Alonzo, Prospero's brother, Antonio. Um, the Sebastian. C- Sebastian, uh, who is Alonso's brother. And Alonzo's Polonius like counselor Gonzalo. So they're all lost. And what happens to them is interesting because Antonio and Sebastian now begin to plot against Alonzo. Alonzo says, well, or no, yeah. Uh, Antonio says and Sebastian say to each other, Well, why don't we kill Alonzo and take his crown? We have this opportunity now. So there's this uh, persistent threat of usurpation and treachery. In this part of the plot, it's like
0: these guys get off on stuff like that. It
1: is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, W.H. Auden will, I think, suggest this in his own take on The Tempest, which we might discuss in a minute. Proceed. So that's one thread. The other thread is your boys Uh, uh, Caliban, Trinculo, Trinculo, and Stefano. So Stefano and Trinculo. (laughs) Oh! Stefano and Trinculo are not part of the king's retinue. They're like low. Lowborn. I don't know what they are exactly, but does it say in the dramatist personae what they are exactly? There's Stefano is a drunken butler and Trinculo is a jester.
0: Let's just say – let's just get it out there right now. Go ahead. They're just Italians.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's just get it out there. Mama mia. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so they stumble on Caliban and they take up with him – And they now begin to plot against Prospero. And Caliban says, look, I've got this cruel master. You can help me defeat him and I'll worship you because you guys seem nicer or at least more ineffectual. But it turns out that they are ineffectual and they just kind of drunkenly stumble through the plot as the comic relief. So that's our second thread. Mm -hmm. And then the third thread is Alonzo's son, Ferdinand. Well, you know—
0: Let me dignify that crew a little bit. (laughs) Okay,
1: Yeah, I was pretty rude about that.
0: Because they allow Caliban to introspect and self-reflect. Yes. In a way that no one else does.
1: That is true, but their relationship to him is as exploitative as Prospero's, but in a different way. But, you know, you're right. And Caliban is, you know, much more eloquent than – Trinculo or Stefano who speak in prose as Shakespeare's lowborn characters often do.
0: So they're the the lowly crew and then Ferdinand.
1: Ferdinand washes up by himself. Shakespeare or Prospero. (laughs) There's a slip. Uh, Prospero gets Ariel to convince him his father's dead because she sings perhaps the most beautiful song in Shakespeare Mm. uh, that Eliot uses to such great effect. In the wasteland where she sings, Full fathom five thy father lies, Of his bones are coral made, Those are pearls that were his eyes, Nothing of him that doth fade, But doth suffer a sea change Into something rich and strange. So he thinks he's alone in the world, And he sets eyes on Miranda. Oh, boy. And Miranda's never seen a man Who's not her father Or Caliban?
0: Do you think Ferdinand's a ten? Because Prospero (laughs) says he's like a three. Yeah, there's other men angels compared to this mutt.
1: Right. No, I think he's probably not a (laughs) ten. Yeah. She, I think, is a ten because he is a worldly traveler and still has such a uh, an immense feeling toward her.
0: Gosh, if I could walk one day in his shoes. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. You have a beautiful have a beautiful woman see me having never seen any other man. Right. you like, this is the best. Right. It is the best. It's yeah. the best.
1: So they fall in love at first sight, you know, coop to food. But, uh, but Prospero, who's – again, he's scripting and directing this whole thing. He's watching them and he says, well, if he gets it too easily, he won't appreciate it. So I'm going to – I'm going to put some—I mean, it's it, he. he's very conscious of the genre he's in. A comedy. In a comedy, the father always mm-hmm. puts some barrier between the lovers. So he says, you know, Miranda, get away. This guy sucks. You know, you're going to be my slave now. And so he makes Ferdinand work for him. And Ferdinand—and he, he does it, like, through magical compulsion. Ferdinand mm-hmm. goes to resist, and he's like, oh, I'm, I'm weak. I can't you know, lift my sword because Prospero puts a spell on him. But he says, it's okay, I'll do it. I'll be your slave because at least I'll get to look at Miranda. And then you get their kind of developing love story throughout the play. And then Shakespeare resolves it at the end by bringing all the characters together. He says, Prospero says, I'm going to use reason— uh, to forgive my enemies rather than revenging myself. So he forgives Alonzo and Antonio. Mm-hmm. Um, he
0: It's it's much he says something about the virtue of forgiveness is is much harder than vengeance.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. So uh, those revenge themes so prominent in Hamlet yeah. and, and other
0: Mr. High Road.
1: Yes. Um he brings Ferdinand and Miranda together. He gives them a kind of mask, M A S Q E Q. Hold on. M-A-S-Q-U-E, a kind of pageant where he brings the gods, Juno, and Ceres down to perform for them.
0: What do you think about the mask making a comeback in our times as a forum? How would that work? I don't know. I don't care. So, go-
1: <laughs> so Like on TikTok? I don't
0: know. <laughs> I bored myself when I was asking that question. But Milton was really great. Um, Comus and—
1: you know, I've never read Comus. Is that terrible?
0: No, <laughs> I haven't read anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, so but they all come together. They have this mask.
1: There, there's well, the mask is before they come to the mask is just for Ferdinand and Miranda because it has one of the funniest lines because there's this, you know Juno and Ceres who are um, if you're if you do Greek it's uh, it's Hera and Demeter they're speaking this beautiful poetry for the marriage and prospero in the middle of it he goes ah shit i forgot like i have got all this other stuff going on we just got we got oh, to yeah. end it you know it's yep, really yep. cuz he's like this harassed you know director um <laughs> so he brings everyone together he forgives antonio and alonzo who don't appear alonso appears penitent antonio doesn't appear penitent antonio's never like oh god i'm so sorry
0: well you know what that means you know what that's about
1: what's that about
0: it's about how when integrity is gone, and there isn't even a, an attempt at at character development, <laughs> um, then that type of individual and that with that psychology, almost metaphysically, and it can be expressed and dramatized, but that type of person in real life loses their ability to assert themselves. Yeah. Or there's some, like, metaphysical castration of right. expression when you cross a threshold of, like, cynicism and mm-hmm. immorality. Yeah. It, that's and what,
1: you know, it's similar to – Iago does the same thing, really. Iago says, I, I, I'm i not going to speak. When they arrest him at the end, he says, I'm not going to say anything. Like, I, I, I did what I did and that's it. And there's something similar because you compared uh, – Antonio to Iago earlier, yeah. and I think that's a that's a good comparison.
0: You, evil silences itself, yeah, at a certain point, mm-hmm. but usually takes benevolence and integrity to
1: provide those um, handcuffs. Right. Okay. Um, what's interesting to me is that it proves that Prospero's magic isn't omnipotent because you have two characters, Antonio and Caliban, who never. Fully pledge their fealty. This is to, right. This is very good. To Prospero, so Prospero, Father, magic. why have you
0: forsaken me? It's yeah. the moment of of being forsaken. Yeah, it's the necessary abandonment.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and with, Caliban never reforms. No. Never Prospero he's not says saved. he says I can't do anything. He says he's the product of a nature that I can't correct. The only thing he says at the end, Prospero of Caliban, is this thing of darkness. I acknowledge mine which to me shows that he knows his own limits. It shows that he admits to himself in a way that if Caliban is disfavorable to him or is something he hates, he's partially responsible because he raised him. I think we would also do a kind of psychoanalytic reading where it's him saying, yeah, I have this massive ego ideal about the great omnipotent magician I am, but I have to acknowledge that I'm part of nature, and I have a body, mm-hmm. and I have lust, and I have hands that get dirty. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like uh, what Jung would call like integrating the shadow. Totally, man. <laughs> it always does feel a little bit unserious to, to invoke Jung. But totally, I, man. I, I like Jung. Um, Do you follow Dr. Peterson? <laughs> JP, come on the pod. <laughs> Come on, the pod, you
0: you honorable minch. <laughs> <clears throat> can you imagine debating Zizek on on large amounts of benzodiazepines? <laughs>
1: no, I can't even imagine without knowing <laughs> who,
0: what he's about. I can Fucked up experience. Yeah, no, I can't I felt imagine. Very debating. bad for him.
1: I didn't watch the whole thing. I thought it was too embarrassing. Yeah, um,
0: well, he was on benzodiazepines.
1: Yeah. Well, you can't. First of all, I wouldn't debate a dialectician. I, well,
0: I, alleged, I mean, I, I I don't know for sure, but just knowing his story, it, yeah, it seemed like, yeah, it seemed like he was on Benzo as a Yeah, I, that's coming back from that.
1: He said, didn't he admit that he barely read Marx in that in that debate?
0: No, we love him for his honesty.
1: We do. <laughs> um, now, I wouldn't debate Zizek or anybody that was that versed in the dialectic because they'll just. They'll take anything you say and fold it into their narrative.
0: Well, yeah, I mean that's that's the style. Is you you argue your counterpart's point uh, more comprehensively than they are able to.
1: Right. Yeah. That's, that's why it's like the most powerful. The dialectic is the most the powerful, most form, of powerful form of
0: argument. Powerful form of argument.
1: But it feels also a little bit dishonorable.
0: <laughs> I would debate you, Jack. Would you? I would have no fear. Okay. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the things I would
1: say? Well, yeah, you're more forceful than I am.
0: In some modes.
1: Yeah. But in that mode? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So back to the Tempest. Um, What were we talking about?
0: Right near the end, John, Caliban has a moment of assertion of sovereignty and independence it comes after prospero says as you look to have my pardon trim it handsomely so there's an offer of a pardon Mm -hmm. not a total offer but
1: like a threat (laughs) is it a threat well he says you know if you want to have my pardon you better behave
0: Hmm. calabin says i that i will and I'll be wise hereafter and seek for grace
1: Now is that ironic in that
0: context is it kind of,
1: yeah, Yes master, yes Right, because he's not fr- He's not at liberty in that moment To say what he really thinks But
0: here's the nuanced view He finishes that <laughs> He finishes that line What a thrice double ass was I to take This drunkard for a god And worship this dull fool In reference to Stefano yeah. And Tranquilo mm-hmm. Which shows the development of an assertion of a sense of independence and freedom mm-hmm. could be referring to Prospero himself. So leveled in a way that isn't a direct insult, but is a... Yeah. Maybe Prospero is the, the drunkard for a god drunk on his own power.
1: Right. Or you could imagine an actor doing it where he said, what was I to take... He says, what a thrice double ass was I to take this drunkard, and he points at Stefano, for a god... And worship this doll fool. And he sort of quietly points to Prospera. Sure. You know, you could imagine what you could do on the stage with that.
0: So where where does that lead for you with Caliban? Where does that lead into? You brought up Amé Cesar earlier.
1: Yeah, Caliban, I think, is um, the character that's had the most kind of influence or resonance. One of the things that I find so fascinating about The Tempest is that Every major play of Shakespeare's has had tons of adaptations and uh, has a rich performance history and they've made all sorts of movies and there's an industry of academic criticism. But I think The Tempest might really be the play of Shakespeare's that has inspired the most number of later major writers to write something inspired by or in response to it. And we could talk about Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, which is partially based on The Tempest. We could talk about Toni Morrison's uh, novel Tar Baby, which is partially based on The Tempest. Um, but there's, that's in the novel, so we'll, we won't talk about that. But there's been a number of major poets who were. And I, uh, in my essay on The Tempest on johnpostelli.com, I wrote about three. Uh, well, I also I alluded to four, but I wrote about three because your boy, John Dryden, aren't you a fan of John Dryden? Big time yeah i'm I'm not as familiar with Dryden as you are, but um
0: we will have time to visit the seventeenth century
1: had we but world enough in time um but he did a version of it that with a guy named Davenant where they added characters, Miranda got a sister um they added all sorts they made it more like spectacular and romantic, and that was that held the English stage as as the tempest for. Almost 100 years, I think. Um, but nobody reads it now, and I, I, I've never read it myself. Um, but Dryden is an example of a major poet. Um, then later in the 19th century, we had Robert Browning, uh, who wrote dramatic monologues, which is to say plays—or poems in the voice of dramatic characters.
0: That old cuckoo fucking weirdo. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> And he has a brilliant dramatic monologue in the voice of Caliban uh, called Caliban upon Satibos, who is the god of Sycorax. And it's it's this post-Darwinian vision of Caliban where Browning gets into his head and imagines what does this creature think about theology? And he realizes what he thinks is, well, I'm in this physical reality and so the god of this world is also a kind of physical creature that rules through power. And, you know, that just as I sort of, uh, you know, play, you know, spoil the anthill, so they do the same thing. You know, the god Sitibos will do the same thing to me. Um, so it's this Darwinian vision of nature without god, nature red in tooth and claw. It's very Victorian. And I think what I said about it was um, it's a brilliant poem, but... The play by Shakespeare has all of these rich meanings in it, and Browning sort of reduces it to one that's very captive to the preoccupations of his time in the 1860s. And then I leapt ahead a century, and I looked at another major poet who writes a work inspired by The Tempest, which is Aimé Césaire. Uh, He was a poet and politician from Martinique, He was influential in the negritude movement. He's a major sort of anti-colonial and post-colonial author. If you've ever taken a class in literary theory, you might have read his Discourse on Colonialism, Mm -hmm. which is kind of Marxist assault on European racial ideology and how it um, deforms the European character as well as the character of the... Colonized peoples that oppresses because they claim to be universalists. It's a lose thing. lose. Yeah, it's a lose lose. Uh, they claim to isn't be. Isn't
0: that the truth, though?
1: Well, yeah, yeah. I mean,
0: no bullshit. Yeah, no, isn't he's right
1: the about the the false universalism.
0: For all that we say, and for all the jokes that we make on this podcast, and we do make jokes and we do push buttons. But isn't that the truth? Yeah. That that type of oppression in our history is. It's it's not something you know, it's not something that. Enabled literary genius and tradition, it's something that had to be overcome for us to have literary genius and tradition. Yeah. That's my tip.
1: Well, and the strongest, I think, works in our tradition undermine it from within, you know, in the way that Shakespeare makes you see Caliban's um, depth of character. Um, You know, it it doesn't just confirm Prospero's view.
0: Yeah, this is a republic
1: of art. So— Césaire brings those themes into his play A Tempest, which was written originally written in French in the 60s and then translated in the 90s by Richard Miller and has since become kind of a staple, I think, of uh, of education. I think a lot of times people will teach The Tempest and A Tempest together. Um, a Tempest is interesting. It tracks the play very closely, but it makes that Modern political subtext much clearer. So, for instance, there's an argument between Caliban and Ariel. And he says in this, the uh, the opening stage directions, he says the characters are the same as in Shakespeare with two alterations. Ariel is now a mulatto slave and Caliban is a black slave. Mm-hmm. And then into the mask, he introduces Ishu, the Yoruba uh, deity, um, to sort of spoil the fun of Juno and Ceres with his... A kind of disruptive physicality that disrupts Mm. this European idealism. So when Caliban and Ariel argue, Caliban says to Ariel, he says, You're an Uncle Tom. You're a collab. Like those are the words used. You're a collaborator with Prospero. And Ariel says, Well, yes, I'm collaborating because when I collaborate, I can make him recognize our humanity. I can implant this conscience in him. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we'll all be free. And Caliban says, Bullshit, I'm going to launch a guerrilla. Army against him, and that's what he thinks he's doing when he teams up with Stefano and Trinculo. Right.
0: Um, Benito Serino.
1: Benito Serino. right, right, exactly. And there's a passage where Caliban says to Prospero, and it sounds so much like post-colonial theory. He says, you lied to me so much about the world, about myself, that you ended up by imposing on me an image of myself, underdeveloped, in your words, undercompetent. That's how you made me see myself. So this idea of colonialism is a discursive regime. It's um, powerful. It is. Um, I did say on my blog, I, I kind of allied says and Browning. I said that they... One writing in the 1860s, one writing in the 1960s, each took an element of the play that's there in the play and ran as far with it as they could based on the the Darwinian preoccupations of the 1860s and the post-colonial preoccupations of the 1960s.
0: Now I ask you, audience, who working today is making those type of critical connections for you? Who? Who's doing it? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Get your number two pencil out.
1: Get <laughs> your number two pencil out. <laughs> yeah. Write this down.
0: Nobody's. Come on. <laughs> this is this is what we do. This is what John does. This is what. Yeah. This is what. This is what's happening. So that's that's really powerful mm-hmm. stuff, and hopefully connections and and patterns that will be explored more. mm Hmm. Um. Through this text um, and not confine the text to some label of oppressive or regressive. Yeah. But and open it up and skin it for all it's worth.
1: Right. Well, I think – I mean I think Césaire's point was always that you claim universality, but you're not universal, but you should be. And so I'm going to properly – Now, that
0: sounds Marxist.
1: Yeah, he was a Marxist. I mean, discourse on colonialism, it's very good. It's scorching. It's short. Uh, You should download an illegal PDF and read it. Uh, But it does end with him saying, you know, well, what will really free the colonial world is the Soviet Union. (laughs) It's like, Mm. oh, no, no. Sorry, buddy. But uh, I know why you think that, but no. Um, But, yeah, there's – but also that's a beautiful part of Marxist idealism, that true universalism. Um, I think it can be corrupted when it, you know, is uh, collapsed onto a state that's behaving with the cynicism of any state. But
0: what do they say? The left are, are like piranhas; they eat themselves. Yeah. <laughs> John, there's so much magic in the tempest, and magic has similar properties with art and aesthetic making, and that's a, a fascinating, enchanting topic of discussion. Mm-hmm. So what do you think about that? Is magic a type of art? Is magic nothing more than a type of aesthetics? And mm-hmm. how does the Tempest work with that? It's oh, a, and back in that day, they were into fairies and nymphs. They were totally conditioned for that shit.
1: Oh, yeah. Qu- Queen Elizabeth was had a, you know, John Dee had a, was, a, you know, a magician advising the government. Yeah, There were some
0: freaky ale-drinking Anglo-Saxon <laughs> motherfuckers.
1: <laughs> I, you know, I once asked a class— um I don't know what the I don't know how this happened but I said I said to a class I was trying to get at the distinction between magic and religion which is another distinction you know magic and art magic and religion are these things the same or not and I said what what's ma-? I just said what is magic and I didn't know what they would say and I had a student who I believe was a devout muslim and he said it was the perfect answer because nobody but a devout, monotheistic believer. No, you don't have to be a Muslim, but I, I think you have to be a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim to give this answer. He said, one word, power. Um, and I think that's the difference between magic and religion. I think magic mm. is where you try to align yourself with the f- spiritual forces at work in the universe to alter reality in your favor, which is exactly what Prospero does. And I think from the point of view of monotheistic religion, this is blasphemous. This is usurping the place of God. Um, Now, is it the same as art? Because doesn't the artist—I mean, Shakespeare seems to think so in part. Shakespeare persistently analogizes Prospero to a playwright, a director— the the most famous speech of the play is where prospero says after they have the after he has the mask for ferdinand and miranda and he dispels the spirits he says Our revels now are ended. These our actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit shall dissolve, and, like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep... And you may have heard him there in his reference to The Globe, a reference to Shakespeare's theater, in which he invested and put on his plays, The Globe Theater. So he's persistently analogizing Prospero to a playwright and director, to the, the, the actual drama, The Tempest, to a magical show Prospero and Ariel are mounting. But I think that if art were just magic to me, that would be the same as saying it's the same thing as propaganda or pornography and, and let me tell you what I mean by that, so please
0: <laughs> because everything you said, except for magic,
1: I'm a fan of right <laughs> fair enough. um what propaganda, magic, and pornography have in common? stop. <laughs> What they have in common is each of them uses some kind of language or images or sounds to create a direct effect on reality that you will, that Ferdinand becomes too weak to fight because Prospero puts his magic on him in the pornographer's hands you literally, deliquesce In the propagandist's hands, armies and masses are summoned forth and they march forward and carry out the will of the ruler propagandist.
0: I've never seen the deliquesce category. <laughs> I, <laughs>
1: okay. I was being delicate. I trust our listeners know what I mean. Um, and it seems to me that if we want to invest... Now, some people are more Cynical or realistic than I am and think that art is just propaganda, pornography and magic. It just is some hacking of the 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 monkey brain. It's to...
0: ridiculous. They can roll down a hill. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I agree. Um, I think if art is to be something worthwhile, it has to have some other uh, effect. And my view has long been that art is for... Um, you know, I partially borrow this from a Portrait of the Artist as a young man, in fact, where Stephen Daedalus is getting it from from Aquinas and Aristotle, but art shouldn't inspire what he calls kinetic emotions. It shouldn't make you do anything. In fact, it should leave you contemplative. Who said that? Uh Stephen Dedalus says it in a portrait of the artist as a young man. Kidding me? <laughs> you, you 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 have kinesis after you?
0: That is yeah, that's ridiculous. You know,
1: I see. I agree with that. What kinetic activity do you do after you experience a work of art?
0: Man, <laughs> man, I, I am, I am the work of art.
1: That's okay. I, I don't think that's excluded.
0: Metabolization. Yeah. No. That's Sh- shift in. So shift in cellular – shift in molecular orientation, man. Shift in spirit, energy, purpose, motivation, drive. Shift in vision, shift in movement, shift in auditory perception,
1: shift in physical will. Right. Relaxation. Hold on though. I don't think any – I I agree with you. It happens to me too. I don't think that's excluded. I think the distinction here is does it give your will an object that you then go act upon?
0: Well, yes, the object is simply to continue the generative stream with more art.
1: Right. That's fine. I think that's fine.
0: Is that in the Daedalus
1: guidelines? I think it is. Yeah.
0: I think what. He's just talking about W.B. Yeats.
1: Yeah, partially. Yeah, there there's the Talking
0: qu- about flaming up, up those Irishmen.
1: Right. Yeah, no. His his point is art shouldn't be political partially. And not in the sense that it doesn't have political implications because it does, but it shouldn't be propagandistic, rabble-rousing. This is
0: we have we have to be very careful saying this on this podcast. Why? Well, <laughs> because we we live for the political Hit job, John? Oh
1: yeah, we do. Yeah,
0: You yeah. Can't be saying that. <laughs> what are you talking about?
1: Man? Hold on, Let I me... yelled at you about Ukraine for ninety minutes. Let me be very precise. Art has political implications. Art can be sexy. You can you can be sexually aroused by a great work of probably visual art. Um, Harold and Mott. <laughs> I've never seen Harold and Mod, so I'm, I don't get your joke. Mod, um, wasn't that with the B Arthur? This is different. Keep going. <laughs> you got that um, I'm not cutting that out.
0: It's <laughs> funny. It's
1: funny that you didn't get it. I literally don't know what Harold and Mod is. You'll have to tell me. Um, but it's not that art doesn't have political implications, erotic components, etc. I think what me and Stephen Daedalus are saying, is that it doesn't point to something in the world and march you over to it to do something, or it doesn't make you kind of physically respond in a way that exhausts. Because the thing about pornography is if you just have pornography, once you've masturbated, you're done with the thing. And the thing about propaganda is once it's achieved its political end, you're done with the thing. You don't need to attend to it anymore.
0: Not even Miles Guo take down the CCP? (laughs)
1: Not even Miles Guo's take down the CCP. So are Um, you
0: saying that take down the CCP, Miles Guo, Steve Bannon, war room pandemic? Are you saying that
1: that's a form of masturbation? It's a form of political propaganda, <laughs> And if the CCP fell tomorrow, you wouldn't be pumped up by that song anymore. I don't know about that. It's a pretty energetic song. Yeah. And Miles Guo is funding this podcast. but uh, <laughs> but it's a it's a fine distinction because there's porous boundaries. Propaganda can become art, um, pornography can become art, you know. Um, But there still needs to be—I think what it is, is art continues to provoke your thought, continues to, as Keats says, tease you out of thought beyond your initial response, and it doesn't have an immediate practical effect. It's not seeking power in the way that magic, pornography, and propaganda are seeking power.
0: If I'm here at this unholy trinity of— Porn propaganda and art. Magic. Magic. It's a quartet. <laughs>
1: no, no, no.
0: Magic no. porn and propaganda.
1: Magic porn and propaganda is the unholy trinity.
0: If there If I'm if we're here and if we're in the zone, there's only one poet that I'm thinking about.
1: Who's that, Sam? WH W.H.I. W. H. <laughs> <laughs> That was a very natural transition. <laughs> so, Auden is the third in my trinity, tri- my.
0: <clears> Triptych.
1: <throat> <clears throat> Auden is the third member of my trio of great canonical poets inspired by The Tempest, not to write a commentary or a criticism, but to do a parallel poetic creation. Um, so, just as Browning and Césaire were inspired to do their their works on uh, on The Tempest. So W.H. Auden in the 1940s, actually directly contemporary with Eliot's Four Quartets and partially inspired by the same thing, which is a conversion to Anglicanism, uh, Auden writes a poem called The Sea and the Mirror. Um, And it's a poem in three parts about The Tempest. Um, It is focused on Caliban, but in this poem... Caliban speaks in prose inspired by the late style of Henry James. So uh, it's very fu- distant from the Caliban of Browning or the Caliban of Césaire.
0: Reminds me a bit of Eliot.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's very Eliot-like. It's very it's very in that modernist tradition of poetry. And it's a very difficult poem. I've only read it once. I'm not an expert on it. Um, it's as probably as difficult as the four quartets. It's in three parts, and it's inspired some of my reflections on magic and art because Auden Auden at this point in his life is deconverting from Marxism, from leftism. He had been a, a great leftist poet in the 30s, and that's what a lot of his fame was based on in poems like September 1st, 1939, and Spain. As um,
0: all the good ones do. As all the
1: good ones do. Um, and he decides for a number of reasons that this ideology is not sufficient for his worldview. So he ends up going back to Anglicanism, which I think he, unlike Eliot, I think he'd been raised with an Anglicanism, and he goes back. And this long poem is one of the poems that I think mark that transition. And he gives three parts. The first part is Prospero's farewell to Ariel. Um, and it's very beautiful. He, Prospero says to Ariel... Now, Ariel, I am that I am, which, of course, is biblical. Uh, I think God says that at some point.
0: It's also fucking redundant. (laughs) It
1: is. (laughs) I am that I am, your late and lonely master who knows now what magic is, the power to enchant that comes from disillusion. What the books can teach one is that most desires end up in stinking ponds. But we have only to learn to sit still and give no orders, to make you offer us your echo and your mirror. We have only to believe you, then you dare not lie, to ask for nothing, and at once from your calm eyes, with their lucid proof of apprehension and disorder, all we are not stares back at what we are. And... What I hear there is his farewell to magic that's even more thorough than the one he gives in The Actual Tempest.
0: I'm sorry to be a troll, but can you imagine someone like Bertrand Russell or (laughs) one of the analytic philosophers reading that in 1930-whatever-the-fuck? No. And just reading it and being like,
1: what a crock of shit. (laughs) This is nonsense. What the (laughs) hell? Gibberish. Uh, (laughs) Mumbo-jumbo. Yeah, well, we don't deal with those types of people here on... I deal with them. Do you? Yeah, hang out with them every Sunday, bro. (laughs) Because they're not in church. Um, (laughs) Bravo. um, But what magic is, the power to enchant that comes from disillusion. So I take that to mean that the wielder of magic is disillusion, doesn't believe it themselves, manipulates it cynically. And what's the antidote? Well, the antidote is to learn to sit still and give no orders and just be passively grateful before the mystery of the universe. And if you learn to do that, you know, Eliot said, teach us to sit still. If you learn to sit still, then you will get a revelation. At that point, all we are not, which is God, stares back at what we are. So you have to learn this passivity, this wise passivity, which is the opposite of magic's interventions into the universe that come from this disillusioned ego seeking mere power.
0: That's a wonderful analysis, John. And if you had to roll it into final thoughts on the Tempest, where would you go?
1: Well, I judged in my essay that I thought that Auden sort of – maybe unlike Browning and Cesare, though I very much appreciate both their their works, um, I think Auden sort of caught the full meaning of the play in that because I think the play ends with Prospero saying farewell to magic. He says, I'll break my wand, which I I actually read as giving up the – sort of thrusting phallus, uh, giving up this. You know, in, in that moment, I think he concedes that he, like Caliban, has been a rapist uh, of the world, of the of the fabric of nature.
0: You're ending strong here.
1: okay? Uh, and he <laughs> says, I will drown my book, uh, Fathoms in the Earth. Um, he will give up this learning that he had abused. Yeah. Um, and so this farewell to magic, but that doesn't mean farewell to art. Because what Auden concludes at the end of The Sea in the Mirror through the voice of Caliban, who addresses the audience that has come to, uh, to see the play, he says that the, the purpose of art, he says, is to—he uh, says— we will we will be blessed by that holy other life from which we are separated by an essential emphatic gulf of which our contrived fissures of mirror and proscenium arch—we understand them at last—are feebly figurative signs, so that all our meanings are reversed, and it is precisely in its negative image of judgment that we can positively envisage mercy. It is just here among the ruins and the bones that we may rejoice in the perfected world work which is not ours so wow that's where we art is the place where we recognize not our magical merging with the mystery of the world but our distance from it and it teaches us a kind of still appreciation of it
0: prospero's epilogue now my charms are all overthrown and what strength i have is mine own which is most faint now 'tis true i must be here confined by you or sent to naples let me not since i have my dukedom got and pardon the deceiver dwell in this bare island by your spell but release me from my bands with the help of your good hands gentle breath of yours my sails must fill or else my project fails which was to please now i want spirits to enforce art to enchant, and my ending is despair unless I be relieved by prayer, which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself, and frees all fault as you from crimes would pardon be, let your indulgence set me free.